Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined today after a Prolonged absence by my uh, co-host and partner in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen. Uh, Elliot, welcome back from travels and illness. Well, uh, thank you, Eric. It's uh, good to be back. The travels were great. COVID not so great, but I uh, do know that if uh, you know you get the vaccinations and stuff, it's miserable, but it's not lethal. So I'm just grateful for that. Well, we're grateful to have you back and at least almost at full strength. So. Glad to have you. And our guest today is a former colleague, one of our most distinguished former colleagues, retired Ambassador John Herbst. John has been notably ambassador to Ukraine, uh, but before that ambassador to Uzbekistan, but has a very broad career, having served as a political counselor in Tel Aviv and in our embassies in Riyadh and Moscow. In fact, I think John served in Moscow just before uh, I arrived there at the period of high, what I like to call high perestroika. Um, he's also been the director of the Office of Independent States and uh, principal deputy to the ambassador at large for the new independent states and uh, finished up his career as coordinator for reconstruction and stabilization at the Department of State. He has a, a bachelor's from Georgetown, a master's from the Fletcher School of Diplomacy. And he even, just to show how incestuous this all is, Elliot, he even studied at uh, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Bologna. So, John, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So, John, today, as it happens, as we're recording, is Ukrainian Independence Day. And you had the opportunity to be the U.S. ambassador in Ukraine while I was sort of uh, sitting across the Black Sea from you in Turkey during uh, one of the most important inflection points in modern Ukraine's uh, recent history, which is the Orange Revolution. Tell us a little bit about that experience and how did it prepare you to understand what's been happening in Ukraine since uh, this past year and and certainly uh, leading up to and after February 24th? For the audience's benefit, the Orange Revolution was when the old-style regime in Kiev tried to steal, falsify the 2004 presidential elections. And the opposition that actually won the vote, but under the first official tally had lost it, poured out into the streets um, in demonstrations, which ultimately led to a changing, uh, to a third round of, of, of vote, third round vote, which the opposition won. And This was a geopolitically important moment for two reasons. The first is the Kremlin was fully behind the efforts to steal the election. And in fact, they felt they would would be able to get away with it. And so the fact that there was this popular outpouring against the falsified elections was a defeat for the Kremlin. And the Kremlin's association with the efforts to falsify the elections led to a substantial um, drop in Kremlin support in the center of of Ukraine, Kiev and elsewhere, not the east where at that point Russian um, support was still substantial and not in the west in the Galicia area where uh, by and large Russia was not popular. But Russia began to lose the center of Ukraine as a result of its manipulation, efforts to help manipulate the 2004 presidential election. So that was one reason why it was strategically important. The other reason was, and you know, maybe Eric, you and Elliot, since you served in the Bush administration at high levels, might, might not fully accept this, but I would argue that up until the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, at senior levels of the administration, or specifically in the White House, there was a sense that we should be able to get along with Russia. And in the support for the opposition um, following the falsified election, the Bush administration began to push back hard against Kremlin activities um, and to see 
Moscow's policies in a clearer light. The policies which now we see is truly dreadful, um, we're beginning to recognize, albeit only tentatively then. And I could provide support for what I've just said, but I'm not no, sure. I, I actually agree with that totally. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that at all. You know, I've in fact, in recent months, I've been reflecting on uh, some of the conversations I had with the secretary and others, you know, particularly about Medvedev and, and so yes. on. And it's just shown himself to be simply a slightly smoother thug. Yes. Um, there were a lot of illusions. And yes. uh, the, the late, great John McCain knew that. And said as much, and I wish we had paid more attention to him. Not to put too fine a point on it, the losing candidate in that attempted stolen election, Viktor Yanukovych, would go on to be elected president subsequently, only to be overthrown by a popular rebellion in, in 2014. Correct. I, I was stunned, and I wonder whether you were, John, reading the long account in the Washington Post that appeared over the past weekend, although it's been online for uh, a week or more, about the intelligence failure by the FSB leading up to the election. I was sort of astonished that one of the two options that the FSB apparently was presenting to Putin as a replacement for Zelensky after the military operation began was Viktor Yanukovych, who, you know, slunk away, even allegedly was disparaged by Putin when he showed up in Russia carrying his bags of cash that he'd looted from the country. It, you know, totally, it, you know, disrespectfully and, and, you know, contemptuously. And yet they were thinking they could somehow put him back into power in Ukraine. Does that, were you as shocked by that as I was? No, that was par for the course. It's not just Yanukovych who has been mentioned as a possible Russian puppet in Kiev. Um, a variety of not even second-rate, but fourth-rate politicians from that part of the Ukrainian political spectrum were um, rumored as potential new presidents of Ukraine. So that it's all indicative of the complete miscomprehension by the authorities in Moscow of what was happening in Ukraine. Why did they get it so wrong, John? I mean, if, you know, for goodness sakes, they'd been part of the same country for, I don't know, you can say centuries, but you know, certainly for a very, very long time. But I mean, throughout this, this isn't that one of the mystifying things, the, the, the degree of Russian miscalculation throughout this is it's just mind-boggling it, it goes back to my time in ukraine and probably well before that let, let me give you a meta historic or meta analytical answer to that i i like to read history and there is what i call the russian imperial history uh, which believes that there is this straight line connection between kiev and rus to the byers muscovy the duchy of moscow to the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, and now Russia. And in that history, Ukraine is um, little Russia. They are the junior partners in this. And certainly, uh, Russian leaders have been schooled in this, but so has the, whole, the Russian people. And so have most Americans who become experts on Russia. This, this imperial version of Russian history was brought to the United States by very distinguished historians, uh, Vernadsky at Yale in the 50s, and I'm forgetting the guy at, at Harvard. And we chances are, if you read Russian history in college, you read a book written by one of these guys. There's also a, there's also a Ukrainian interpretation of history. Very, very different. It goes from Kiev and Rus to the Duchy of Galicia, Daniel of Galicia, and then to the uh, Cossack uh, government in the 17th century. And then to independent Ukraine in post-World War I, and to independent Ukraine today. So these guys have always looked at Ukraine through this prism, which has made it hard for them to see things clearly. And there have always been um, Ukrainians who have accepted this history as well. And so the Russians would talk to these Ukrainians. They became their assets, and they were similarly blinded. If you look at Ukrainian history, it's not at all like Russian history. I think Ukrainian history is summarized, or is exemplified rather, 
by that wonderful picture of the Zaporizhian Cossacks writing to the Sultan of, of the Ottoman Empire. And they were clearly telling him where to go. And that decentralization element of Ukrainian history is something you Russians do not understand. And what we're seeing is the fierceness of Ukrainian identity in opposing this Russian invasion. And of course, a Russian invasion, which clearly has a uh, goal of destroying that Ukrainian identity, which is why some people correctly talk about this as genocide. So, John, you know, I I mean, I I think I agree with you. And I think that that kind of Russian imperial history that you talk about is a big source of the explanation for why so many people underestimated Ukrainian will to resist and the Ukrainians' ability militarily to thwart Russian um, designs, uh, but also to seriously overestimate the Russian military. I mean, beforehand, uh, a lot of, you know, so-called Russian military experts, analysts in our uh, community here in in D.C. were very uh, correctly foresaw what the Russians might do in terms of the axis axis of approach that they might take and that they would probably go for Kiev and try and overthrow the government, have a regime change operation, replace Zelensky with Yanukovych or whatever other quizzling that they were going to put in place and thoroughly overestimated the ability of the Russian military to actually execute this very large combined arms operation. Do you think that's because they also were focused on this Russian imperial history? They focus on Russia and not the other independent states that emerged from the collapse of the Soviet Union? Well, you know, the, 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 this notion of Russian imperial history is sort of like the, the background on which everything develops. Um, so it's certainly an important part of the equation. But it, it also comes back to the view they've acquired of Ukraine from reading something about it, but not really knowing the country. And obviously, Ukraine has not had a sterling 30-year history as an independent state. We're all familiar with the internal problems relating to corruption and such. But uh, we also know, at least those of us who really know the country, understood that there is this separate Ukrainian identity, not restricted to just Western Ukraine, and that it includes the desire to control their own fate. So that what that meant to me as an analyst you know, in 2013, 2014, as this crisis was brewing, was that an important element of the Ukrainian political scene, not necessarily a positive element, the oligarchs, were going to come down four square on the side of Ukraine because they didn't want to be part of the Russia world. They knew that in the Russian world, the oligarchs in Moscow with the connection to the Kremlin would eat their lunch. And that's why they stood up. I mean, we, we don't like we don't like Kolomoisky, but he did very important stuff in Dnipro as the Russians started the war in 2014. And I don't think that Ukraine would have survived in Donbass if Akhmetov had not thrown his weight into the fight in May of 14, in Mariupol specifically. And this was all understandable if you paid attention to Ukraine, as opposed to having certain myths about the country. And then you read up on it and those, whatever you read would reconfirm your, your myths so you couldn't see things plain. And of course, that also neglects the fact that as junior partners in the Soviet enterprise, the Ukrainians were an important force. I mean, the rocket industry, right, is in Ukraine's east. And turning to the cultural side, um, Ukrainians make up certainly a large number, maybe even a majority of all Moscow patriarchate priests. So in all these elements, if Ukraine was not, you know, if Ukraine was not solid, you as Russia have a problem. And that relates directly to your question about the failure of the Russian military effort, besides the fact it was simply stupidly conceived. I mean, as you know, Eric, I'm part of a network which includes lots of retired three and four stars. And Ben Hodges was explaining to me in December, there's no way that with the disposition Russia had, you know, 200,000 troops on Ukraine's borders, they'd be able to seize Kiev. And of course he was right. You know, at some point, I'd, I'd like us to talk a little bit about what the long-term implications of this are. I've been reading Dominic Levin's excellent book on the run-up to uh, World War I from the, the Russian point of view. 
And of course, what's striking about the opening paragraphs, literally the opening paragraphs, is he says, well, you know, if Ukraine is not part of the Russian empire, then there really isn't a Russian empire, I mean, which I think really, it's the point that you're making, the centrality of Ukraine to Russian imperial power, and in some ways, the Russian self-conception. Uh, you know, we've all been focused on the day by day to day and the blow by blow, uh, quite understandably. And of course, the future is murky. But if if there's one conclusion that I think is pretty straightforward to draw, it's Ukraine is not going to be part of a new Russian empire. You know, the the Russians have consolidated Ukrainian national identity in quite astounding ways. There's going to be hatred that goes on for generation after generation after generation. You know, I can imagine a Ukraine that fits into the West because it's a Western kind of country in some respects. What, what does it mean for Russia if Ukraine is permanently and profoundly alienated? I think, yes, as Brzezinski said, there's no Russian empire without Ukraine. But I think more importantly, a Ukrainian victory in this war probably means or let's put it this way, it substantially increases the odds that Russia could become a quote-unquote normal country. And, and let, let, me, let me turn to my favorite Kremlin-approved um, analyst, Dmitry Trenin. <laughs> uh, Trenin wrote a book, I don't know, it was 2002, 2003, called something like The End of Eurasia. That may have been it. Uh, and in that book, he laid out the Siloviki view of, of history, which is very much that Russian imperial view of history, and how that was may have made sense for Russia in the past, but was not a good guide for a future Russia, and that Russia understood that and was moving away from that past. Now, of course, Trenton was spectacularly wrong, as events which crystallized during the Orange Revolution made clear. So he had to rewrite that book a few years later. But the, the point is, a guy, you know, a former intelligence officer, someone who's now rabid because the hammers come down in Russia, you have to be fully supportive of this fool's venture, but who understood that Russia could only prosper by distancing itself from its old habits. And I think that his analysis is, absolute, is was absolutely correct, that to succeed in today's world, you have to empower your people because this all depends upon people talent to unlock technology. And this is all part of it. Uh, the same kind, and you know, Kluchevsky famously said, I say, I like, I like history, and what I'm giving you is a paraphrase, when Russia marches, the Russian people suffer. And we see that in spectacularly reaffirmed right now. So I believe that Russia cannot remain a great country, a world power, unless it changes its political style. And again, the fact that a longtime Razvedchik, who always wants to be within the Kremlin-approved penumbra, understands that to me says there are lots of people in the official elite who understand this. I know I agree totally. I mean, John, when you and I were serving in Moscow and as the Soviet Union was coming unraveled, I'm sure you had the same experience I did of many, many Soviet citizens saying, you know, in a post-Soviet, you know, Russia, we want to become a normal country. You know, we, we, we want to be normal. And for all of his flaws, I think Boris Yeltsin was trying to take Russia in a, a direction of a, a normal country. And Putin, I think, took it in a completely different direction. And I think by intent, from the beginning, wanted to take it in a different direction because he, while he might not have had any nostalgia for Soviet communist ideology, had clear nostalgia for empire from the beginning. And, and now it's seeing its full efflorescence in his 7,000 words screed last summer about how Ukraine's not really a nation, it's part of Russia, and then his more recent comments uh, about Peter the Great and you know restoring Russia to its its imperial greatness, and you see this as a leitmotif every night on 
on Russian uh, Russian TV with all of the propagandists for the Putin regime, you know, Solovyov, Simonyan, and of course, uh, you know, with the recent assassination of Dasha Dugina and her father, uh, who, who's been a, an ideologist of this kind of great Russian empire, you know, this is this has to be killed for Russia to be able to become a normal country. Can I ask the two of you, since both of you have served there and know a lot more than I do, you know, what's the mechanism that takes you from the kind of uh, well-organized dictatorship police state that you've got now to in which basically anybody who's in the elite is has to be kind of complicit in the regime's doings and which has a pretty good uh, lock on communications and opinion shaping? Uh, What's the mechanism that then takes you to normalcy? I mean, is it civil war? What is it? Well, if you've been reading Levin's book, Elliot, you know that, A, uh, he talks about the hollowness of Russian institutions before 1917. Check. (laughs) They're still, you know, been hollowed out by Putin, except for the instruments of repression. Um, There are no other real institutions outside of the military and the security services. And the other historic uh, means for, you know, for uh, doing this has been military defeat, which is what broke apart the empire in, in 1917. And as Levin describes in the book, the collapse ultimately of the, of the Russian army. And we might, you know, see that again, I think. Watching the Ukrainians, you know, sort of pick apart interstices of uh, Russian logistics around Kherson, you know, bridge after bridge, one bridge at a time, one road at a time, it's going to be very difficult to sustain the rather large force that's down there now, which they suckered the Russians, I think, into sending down from the Donbass because they kept talking about this big counteroffensive that they were going to launch. And the Russians walked into this. And how are they going to sustain that force over time, I, I, you know, after a while, if you don't have food, you don't have gas for your trucks, and but you can't operate, and people start to, you know, walk away. I mean, that's you know a real possibility. John, would you agree with that? Yes, um, and I would add, it's not, it wasn't just what happened after the Russian defeat in World War One. It happened in Russo-Japanese War, where you had some significant reforms because you had you had the Revolution of 1905, but you had significant reforms as a result. After the Crimean War, you had major reforms when the Russian defeat there. And of course, at the end of the Cold War, the end of the Afghan War, the fall of the Soviet Union. So, and it's also worth recalling that it took two years, but two years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev was, was gone. And related to this, it's, I mean, we don't, we don't have the best information on, on Russia, what's going on at elite levels in Russia, but any analysis of the two videos, the video a few days before the invasion, where you know, Putin with all of his siloviki, and everyone was appalled as he was talking about things. And then the one right after the invasion, where it was Putin with Shoigu and Gerasimov, where they were clearly appalled as he was talking about raising the nuclear alert. So this is Putin's baby. And I, I think that ultimately this will lead to a change in leadership, although ultimately could mean years down the road. So can I ask the two of you one other question? This is, it's not gossipy, but it's uh, fascinating detail. So there was, we think, this attempt to blow up, uh, what's his name, Dugan, that got his daughter, although some people say, well, actually they were targeting the daughter, not Dugan. What is this all about? And more importantly, what do we think it means? I'm not certain what it's all about. I do know that this very peculiar version that the FSB put out within like 36 or 48 hours of her death, which suggests, you know, all these details is not plausible. And it's not plausible to the point, um, according to Andrei Piantkovsky, but I've not verified this, this version has not actually been put into the major Russian media. It's like, you know, on their big TV programs, the big political TV programs, maybe because it is so preposterous that they could have all this detail so quickly. But there's also the peculiarity. If it were true, it would suggest the FSB, so brilliant in analysis after the fact, was so incompetent to let this all happen. (laughs) Yes. 
That's right. I mean, this arch enemy of Ukraine of, of Russia somehow got into the country, rented an apartment next to her. So obviously an elite apartment and was able to blow oh, go to this nationalist gathering and blow her up. Where the I mean, CCV cameras had been turned off for the previous yeah. two weeks. Who did that? Well, well, that, well that, that suggests, in fact, this was this may have represented some Siloviki effort yeah. who trying to um, diminish, weaken Dugan. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it, it could be anything. I, I think it's hard to stress how much we don't know about this. Correct. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the cover story after, you know, how many years has it been since Boris Nemtsov was killed? They haven't solved that murder. Right. You know, uh, Anna Politskova, Politskaya, you know, they haven't solved her murder. Um, but been 36 hours, somehow they miraculously managed to solve this thing with a story that makes no sense whatsoever. I'm also, I was looking today, maybe, John, you can shed light on this. They had an open casket funeral for her after her car was blown up and shown burning, which sort of yes uh, is a little bit. Uh, mystifying to say the least. So th- there, there's a lot we don't know about this, but it could easily be, you know, Elliot, before we started in the green room saying, do you have any good theories? And I go, no, but I got a whole bunch of bad ones. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, I mean, could be, I mean, he's reputedly close to the GRU. So this could be some kind of FSB GRU, right. you know, uh, feud that we don't understand. I, I have to say, doesn't it make, um, it stands to reason that whatever the reason for this is, and I, it, again, I, on, on the face of it, the whole thing just doesn't make any sense. This has to be unnerving for a lot of the Russian elite, I would think, particularly the people like Solovyov and uh, Simonyan, yeah, uh, Simonyan and uh, others, because no matter what the explanation is, it can't be good for them. Even, I mean, even if it's you know some really ticked off uh, veteran of Ukraine who lost you know friends there, and you know decide on this as a way of uh, taking revenge. No matter what the explanation is, it, it has to be at least disconcerting, to put it mildly. Yeah, I mean, there's a level of incompetence being ex- exposed, as John was saying, that either they were incompetent in letting this assassin, you know, run around, or they've incompetently, you know, put this whole thing together, because it's all, you know, the story is, is uh, you know, unraveling anyway. I mean, it could be uh, you know, a message from Putin to the ultra conservatives who've been getting a little loud about, you know, we have to have total war when he's a, clearly not waging total war in Ukraine. He's limited, limited the mobilization of the country, which is partially, not solely, but partially responsible for some of the poor military performance. There's a lot of other things that go into it, corruption, lack of experience with large combined uh, arms operations and just the scale of what they were trying to do, which is vastly larger than anything they've done before in Chechnya or Georgia. I mean, the, the scale of this thing is just, you know, thousand miles front is much bigger than anything they've attempted before. Can we talk a little bit more about how this ends? Uh, we were discussing this a little bit before we came on. You know, the the mainstream Washington prediction seems to be stalemate which I therefore automatically assume is wrong. And, you know, there's a policy recommendation that flows from that, which I think is worse than wrong, which is, well, we have to begin now figuring out some sort of diplomatic line to the Russians, which I think would be a catastrophe because you just begin negotiating with yourself because it's, you know, as soon as you put forward an unreasonable proposal, everybody will say, well, that's unreasonable. The eternal search for the diplomatic off-ramp. Right. But 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 I guess my inclination is to think that there is at least a reasonable prospect that as this goes on and as the Russians as the Ukrainians pursue uh, what Mick Ryan has called a strategy of corrosion, the Russians crack, and that there's a dramatic change in this that it doesn't simply string it, uh, itself out month after month throughout the winter and even beyond. I'm curious, what, what do the two of you think? I I agree that time actually favors Ukraine as long as Western support does not diminish. That's, that's, that is a critical condition. Uh, but I could actually see this war going on for, for um, years. I'm not predicting it will go on for years, but I could see it. I see this war ending when Russia realizes that its, its goal is unreachable. And right now that means Putin needs to recognize it. 
uh, but it could be some other constellation of leaders that recognize it. It could also be Putin himself. I don't rule out that possibility, though. I don't think it's likely. You know, I was concerned a little bit, not so much in the most recent time period, but a couple of weeks ago, that the administration was maybe content to, as I've said publicly a couple of times, play for a tie. And uh, John, you authored an open letter uh, that I signed on to. I think there were about 19 of us who ultimately signed uh, people who'd served in the former Soviet Union, have some experience with all of this, calling for much more robust support for Ukraine and, and arguing that Ukraine has a chance to win. And I also co-wrote with David Kramer, Steve Began, and Dan Feta a piece in the Bulwark that argued the same thing, which came out. I mean, they they were roughly contemporaneous. And since that time, I'm not sure whether we can take credit for it or not, but since that time, there have been two rather large packages of weapon support announced for Ukraine by the Biden administration that clearly seem to suggest uh, that they're not playing for a tie, that they, they, they want Ukraine to win. I and mean, it's got counter-battery radar, which has been a very important shortfall for the Ukrainians. It's got a lot of ammunition in it, I think 240,000 some uh, rounds of uh, one, uh, 155 ammunition, but also uh, more ammunition for the HIMARS, which have had a, a huge effect. The long-range fires that have really done enormous damage to, again, to the Russian logistical system. So do you agree, John, that, you know, the, arguably what we've written has had some impact, but but also um, that the administration really now does seem to be understanding that, that Ukraine has to win and that they're crucial in making it happen? I am not certain about the ultimate intent of the administration. And I even hold a suspicion they have not thought this through thoroughly. They've obviously spent a great deal of time thinking about it, but they have not thought this through thoroughly. They're more in a crisis management mode than a clear definition of our interests and of the factors at play to uh, protect our interests. Because I think if they did the latter, they'd wind up where we are, where we were in that, in that joint um, statement. Uh, and there's also a, a very clear caution. I actually call it timidity. Uh, on the part of the administration when it comes to taking measures that would bolster Ukraine's efforts, not just to defend itself, but actually to take back territory. They have um, foolishly, in my opinion, discussed the nuclear threat, completely illiterate in nuclear doctrine or nuclear deterrence doctrine and practice, as done successfully by countless U.S. administrations during the Cold War. Uh, so this is this is all a problem. Our listeners can't see this, but I'm nodding vigorously in agreement. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so that leads me to another question. Uh, since uh, Eric, I mean, you you're a career uh, diplomat, uh, John. Uh, Eric and I were feckless uh, political appointees in the wicked and uh, foolish George W. Bush administration. These guys are obviously twice as smart as we were and uh, well-intentioned, and uh, uh, they all get along with each other. And actually, the, ser- the question is a serious one. Uh, I've been appalled, frankly, by the way they've, they've talked about it. I think they handled the initial diplomacy very well. I give Bill Burns, our former colleague, a lot of credit for how the initial sharing of intelligence and so on went. But, but I have that same very strong sense that there isn't a clear strategy here, that there's been way, way, way too much uh, self-deterring talk about escalation and nuclear weapons and so on, and a real fear of having the Ukrainians actually, you know, achieve some sort of decisive victory. So I'm curious, how do you explain all that? Explain this caution, or explain the arms package in light of that? No, well, the the caution. I mean, the, the arm. Actually, I'm curious. You maybe talk about both. The, the arms pack. I think my sense is what's happened is they've gradually, you know, they're gradually easing their f- foot off the brake. A and B. I think Biden is somewhat tougher and more hawkish than his advisors. That may be mistaken. Although I think actually, I think Austin may be. Uh, the most hawkish one of the bunch. Um, so I, I guess I do tend to think that they're taking the f- foot off the brake a bit. But the other stuff I, I find baffling too. The pattern is very clear. 
they say no to the request that they should say yes to. And over time, they, that no turns into a yes, but it takes time. And even when it turns into a yes, they do it in droplets as opposed to substantial supply. Yeah, this is Elliot's point that they're titrating this out, you know, yes. with a dro- yes. eye, you know, eyedropper. But, the, but there's also another element. Um, I think they are uh, overly cautious or even intimidated by Putin's nuclear threat. So that's a factor. But they also don't like public criticism. So they react to that in ways that encourage more such criticism. And to me, that's why we do these letters. <laughs> Incentivizing our bad behavior, yes. Let's get into the escalation dynamic here, because I think it's an interesting question. I, I agree totally with what you've said about the, their illiteracy in fundamental nuclear deterrence. I think, I think Frank Miller and I actually wrote something about that last week. One of the things that they've held up on is, of course, uh, the Attackums rounds for the HIMARS. The HIMARS are a high-mobility rocket system that's wheeled that can use different kinds of munitions. They've been giving them the so-called Gimlers rounds, which have a, a effective radius of, I think, about 60, 70, 80 kilometers, something like that. Attackums have a 300-kilometer range. And so the idea here is we, we don't want to give them the attackums because that would allow them to strike into Russia and that would be escalatory. We only want to, and the, the argument would be, we only want to give them defensive means. We don't want to give them the you know means to offensively attack Russia and provoke escalation. And I guess my question is, why shouldn't the Ukrainians be able to go after uh, missiles in Belgorod, which is just some small number of kilometers over the Ukrainian border, or in Belarus, where they've also been taking fire, why shouldn't they be able to hit those legitimate military targets? I mean, somehow that's escalatory, but the Russians doing this to Ukraine is not escalatory? I just don't understand the logic. Um, And it gives the Russians an advantage. But it's also true, it's not the full American position. I mean, there have been peculiar incidents in Bielgoda going back months, which um, did exactly what you said, which took the war to points in Russia which were essential for the Russian military operation. And as best I can tell, we didn't say boo about that. And also, and this is interesting, the Russians have not claimed that the Ukrainians did this because they didn't want the implications for themselves of them blaming Kiev. So that's interesting, too. Uh, But I I believe we should affirm Ukraine's right to legitimate self-defense, which would include the right to strike back at targets in Russia, which are used for military operations. But the administration is not quite willing to go there. But I'm pleased the administration has not been fussing about the Ukrainian strikes on very successful strikes on Crimea. I mean, legally, we have never recognized the invasion and seizure of Crimea, just as we never recognized the forcible incorporation of the Baltic states into Russia or Soviet Union after World War II. Um, So that's clearly, by their own parameters, a legitimate set of targets. Now, if they drop the Kerch Bridge, I don't know how. How do you think the administration would react to that? Uh, I mean, look, this is speculative. But given what I've seen, I would not be surprised to learn that they've counseled against it. Um, it would be, a, from my standpoint, it would be a natural thing for Ukraine to do. Yeah, me a, too. because it's logistically important, but B, because it would be perhaps even more dramatic than sinking the Moskva, right? The flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Yeah, to be clear to our listeners, this is a bridge built by the Russians after the seizure of Crimea to link Russia physically to Crimea. And so it's a a perfect symbolic target, right, to disconnect Crimea from from physically from Russia. Strategic and symbolic, yes. Do the two of you think it's realistic to expect that this war, whenever it does end, whether it's weeks, months, years, will end with a Ukraine whose borders are those of pre-2014? Uh, I think the right answer, at least for me, is I don't know. When, when, when I've been pressed to define victory for Ukraine, my answer is a Ukraine which has 
secure, which is secure, fully sovereign, and economically viable. Um, you can have those things without having all the Ukrainian territory that was under Kiev's control in 2014. Um, it does mean, however, you have to have Odessa. Um, it does mean you have to have either security guarantees or what some people call the Israeli security solution, which means you arm them in ways that make them a very, very nasty target, even for Russia. And as for the actual territory, well, that may wind up being decided at the conference table. But also, um, obviously, Ukraine has to have a decisive say on that. But also, given some of the things that Eric and I were both saying about how things may play out in Russia in light of their failure to date, I could easily see the whole Russian objective falling apart um, as a result of continued failure. In other words, Ukraine was getting all of its territory back, including Crimea. All that will require some fancy footwork, which is hard to predict at the present time. Since we've been talking about what we've been reading, Elliot, I, I've been reading the first volume of uh, Stephen Kotkin's really phenomenal uh, biography of Stalin. And I've actually been reading uh, just in the last week uh, the chapter about the debates that the Bolsheviks had about the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which was negotiated, at least initially, by Trotsky with the Germans, uh, who, who essentially already occupied almost all of Ukraine. But it created an independent Ukraine, albeit kind of under German uh, protectorate for a brief period of time. So initially, Trotsky's position was, I mean, Lenin wanted to sign it. No, He didn't care. He just wanted to sign it, be done with it, end the war for political reasons. Trotsky came up with this idea that was pretty idiotic of, you know, neither peace nor war. And he, he sort of gave these, you know, kind of huge orations to his German counterparts at the negotiating table and then came back with this slogan. And then the Germans launched another offensive and the and the... Bolshevik said, you know, basta and you know, <laughs> signed, signed the deal and Ukraine became independent. So I, I, I just bring that up just to say, you know, diplomacy can go through all sorts of permutations and, and combinations before you get a get a result. And I like John, I'm hesitant to say how I think this will end. But I'm curious. I mean, it could easily end, as John says, with the Russians the Russian army collapsing, and the Russians just giving up this objective of destroying Ukraine. I mean, it would re this would require a change in leadership, clearly, that we were speculating about earlier. But the Russians pulled out of Kiev and pulled away from Kharkiv. So kind of giving up some of these objectives is obviously not something they're not capable of doing. They, they could, could easily do it. You could see them maybe pulling out of the south because they can't, or at least back to Crimea, because they can't really supply that whole area from and run and, and occupy it against a hostile population all the way from, you know, Mariupol all the way down to Kherson, that they, they, they may have trouble maintaining that, particularly as the Ukrainians go after the logistics. And then, you know, who knows what happens at the negotiating table with Lugansk, which they more or less totally control now, and Donetsk, which they control about a half of. So, you know, it could come out in a variety of different ways. But I'm curious about the question of like how you get there. I mean, you know, John said, you know, it's going to be, it could be at the negotiating table. I'm just curious about how you even get to the negotiating table. I mean, there we had these kind of indifferent negotiations that went on between the Ukrainians and the Russians for a while in Istanbul. You did get, and I must confess, this surprised me. I never thought you would get this, but you did get the grain agreement. Um, that the Turks and the UN worked out with the Russians and Ukrainians that, you know, let Ukrainian grain exit the Black Sea, which is very important for Ukraine's economy, obviously, to keep it functioning. My suspicion is that that was driven by uh, Putin's desire to keep Turkey available as a, a place from which he can escape uh, NATO sanctions and which the oligarchs who support him can you know, basically park their yachts and their money. And, and that seems to be going on. We just had the Deputy Secretary of Treasury calling his counterpart after having visited Turkey, saying stop being a place where, you know, sanctions can be violated. Unfortunately, Turkey's got a long history of that. 
you know, I just wonder, I mean, John, if you've got thoughts, how do you get to the negotiating table? Putin seems to have no interest in negotiating. Zelensky, if you read the polls, has very little room to maneuver and to to make, you know, we were talking about potential territorial concessions you might make in the Donbass or maybe in the South somewhere. But I don't see right now that he's got the ability to do any of that. So how how even as two former diplomats, how do you even get there? I don't even see the path. I, I agree roughly with your analysis, Eric. I think the the predicate for a realistic negotiation is clear Russian defeat, or at a minimum, clear Russian failure to achieve its objectives. At that point, at that point, maybe the Kremlin decides it does not need to have effective political control of Ukraine. Because that remains Putin's objective. They have to give that up. Once they give that up, I can see a real negotiation taking place. The problem, of course, which is part of the political game or the diplomatic game, is you've got a lot of weak sisters, especially in Europe, um, who simply want this war to go away. And they don't understand, or they better yet, they refuse to see that any ceasefire they try to cobble together now, even if they were able to do it, would simply be a prelude to the next Russian offensive, which has been the Russian pattern going back to Georgia in 2008, and then, of course, with the Minsk agreements. Yeah, I, sadly, I agree. Elliot, do you, uh, I've got one final question for our guest, but do you have... Uh... No, I um, I mean, I guess the main thing is I agree with John that this is one of those uh, cases where there has to be some dramatic battlefield events. And, you know, I just hope that we can, there, there is a, um, an instinct, which is sometimes strong in the State Department, but I think it's pervasive in uh, the U.S. government and in, uh, among certain elements of the chattering classes to think war is absolutely terrible, which of course it is. Therefore, we need to have a negotiation. And uh, this is something, Eric, you and I have uh, have talked a lot about and even taught together. In a, we in taught a, a whole course about it. <laughs> there, there are times when you don't negotiate. You know, Churchill did not want to negotiate with Hitler in 1940. Lincoln was not going to negotiate with Jefferson Davis. There, there may be a time for negotiation. And of course, you never simply rule it out. But it is a question of, of timing. And I think, uh, if, I may, if, I say so, if I may say so, and you know, it's a good thing to have some very distinguished diplomats like the two of your good selves out there saying, you know what, there's a time for negotiations and this ain't it. Uh, on this specific point, um, Putin is giving us lots of material to drive this home. All the war crimes, the rhetoric coming from not just the Russian media, but a former president of Russia, which has serious scholars talking about genocide. And of course, any territorial concessions mean that you're leaving those Ukrainians to the tender mercies of these people. A truly gruesome prospect. And that's something we need to make sure people understand. Yes. I mean, the filtration camps, the separation of uh, you know, Ukrainian children from their families, I mean, it's, it's really quite horrific. And I, I agree that we probably as a, you know, a nation haven't talked about it enough. I mean, i I don't know about the two of you, but I am still somewhat stunned that the president of the United States has presided over $13 billion in military aid over six months to Ukraine, which is great. Amazing, yes. But he has yet to speak to the nation from the Oval Office to explain the stakes and why it's so important, as, as John was saying at the outset of his comments on this podcast today, why this is so important. And, and he has yet, I mean, he's made comments along the way, including, you know, about, you know, Putin, but he has not really spoken in a coherent way to the public, laying out the case for why we have to continue doing what we're doing. And I worry a little bit that even though public opinion, according to polling, is pretty robust in support of Ukraine. John, I, I, you emailed me just the other day a, a poll from the Chicago Council. There's a there's another, I think, a Reuters poll out today that's very similar in terms of kind of robust support for this. But that forty billion dollars that Congress appropriated is gonna is gonna expire at some point. Uh, we're gonna need to go back to the well 
And I really worry that there hasn't been the political groundwork laid by by uh, President Biden to to do that. Just imagine what would happen if Biden were to do that. And before he did that, he reached agreement with um, McConnell. And so you have Biden do his speech from the Oval Office, then get some time for the Republicans to say something similar right after. How that could shape the political environment here, including um, going into the midterms, where we're all concerned about the uh, possible increase of uh, "quote unquote" populist Republican representation. So, John, just you've been great with your time. I just wanted to ask you one final question. I mean, we've sort of circled around it, but just I want to kind of press you a little bit. How would you grade the Biden administration? We've talked about, you know, the that they've been slow. They haven't been as as quick as all of us would like with assistance. So we, you know, on this podcast, we've certainly been pushing that since uh, since February. Um, in our various writings, all three of us have written about this. Uh, public letters we've done. I mean, they have done a, a you know a decent job of maintaining alliance cohesion uh, and keeping the alliance together. I give them high marks for that. How do you grade the administration overall? By adjective of choice is adequate. And so if we're turning that into a grade, maybe that's a C plus. Uh, clearly, they've laid out the right framework for pushing back, you know, the, the three pillars of sanctions, arming Ukraine, and plussing up NATO in the East. Great. Uh, but their implementation has been cautious, timid, slow. You know, I, I try not to get overwhelmed by the passions of the day. I try to take a, a an approach over time when I look at issues. And again, I think if we continue the way we are, Ukraine probably wins. It just takes longer and it's iffier. And so if, if that's correct, then 20 years back, 20 years from now, we'll say, well, I guess they did okay. They did well because they won. It came out the right way. But since we don't know, we don't have that, we don't have that in the bag yet. I'm concerned about the, the, the weaknesses in their policy, which could lead to the wrong approach. So right now, I give them a C or a C plus. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm a little more generous grade. I give them an incomplete. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's actually a way to dodge the question. <laughs> well, I think no matter what it means, uh, all three of us have to keep the pressure on. So yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Okay. John, thanks, John. It's, been, it's been great having you. Um, uh, we we want to have you back on Shield of the Republic, but um, uh, thank you for joining us and helping us welcome uh, Elliot back from his sickbed. Um, Elliot, thank you for for uh, struggling to get through the the podcast. We appreciate your effort. Uh, and <laughs> well, thanks for the welcome back. I'm glad you didn't, uh, you know, rotate someone else in here when I uh, dropped out for a couple of weeks. Uh, I think we did have Bill Crystal in one week, but never mind. <laughs> okay, fine. One, once is okay. <laughs> and that's all for Shield of the Republic for this week. 